Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us each week as we break down an issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. Since World War II, the world has aimed to exist in relative peace, brokered in the main part by successful alliances involving the US, Asia-Pacific region and Europe. But with the rise of China and aggressions by Russia, there are fears the current structure isn't fit for the 21st century, with calls to expand existing Atlantic-Pacific ties. Keith, why are some commentators worried about this? Yeah, so um, it may be useful to get a bit of history on all of this. So Mm. a revolution took place at the end of World War II, which gave us a number of international bodies. The obvious one is the United Nations. Prior to that time, countries just operated in their own way. They might be part of a bigger empire, such as the British Empire, the French Empire. But basically, people did their own affairs. At the end of World War I, which was supposed to be the war to end all wars, there was an attempt to try to create an international organisation. Philosophers over the centuries have written about the need for international cooperation, etc. None of those got very far. And then after World War I, writers like H.G. Wells said, we need to create an international organisation. And so a number of those Western countries that won World War I, including Australia, joined in in creating the League of Nations. The League of Nations never had the Americans. They helped design it but refused to join. Mm -hmm. The Soviet Union was never invited to join until towards the end of its existence. And then they sacked the Soviet Union for invading Finland. And so it's basically a European activity with some of their sort of colonial links, such as Australians getting involved, and the League of Nations was based in uh, Geneva. At the end of World War II, it was decided to be much more ambitious in creating an international organisation. Winston Churchill, for example, had said that World War II was an unnecessary war. If the League of Nations had been used properly, then the war could have been avoided. Mm -hmm. So Churchill was involved in creating what we call now the United Nations, And virtually every country in the world is a member of the UN. Now, when people think about the United Nations, they tend to think about the political activity. But in fact, a lot of the UN's work is done each day, all day, every day, and we take it for granted. Mm -hmm. We will be broadcasting, well, that's the International Telecommunications Union. You use your mobile phone, that's International Telecommunications Union. If you're old-fashioned enough to post letters, that's the Universal Postal Union. (laughs) 90% of the world's cargo still goes by sea. That's the International Maritime Consultative Organization. So we actually have a lot of organizations working behind the scenes that knit the world together. They don't get involved in any scandals or anything. It's very boring. That's why we in the media ignore them. Yes. And they just (laughs) carry on doing their work. So we are surrounded by all of the work done by the specialized agencies. And when you then get a bit of a scandal like... How are we going to handle COVID, for example? Suddenly we get to hear about the World Health Organization. That's right. For the rest of our lives, we ignore the World Health Organization. So when you get back to 1945, there's incredible amount of ingenuity that came. You know, you don't normally associate ingenuity with bureaucrats and politicians. Not typically. But they produced this United Nations family. And then at the same time, of course, you get the North Atlantic Treaty Organization 
being formed because of concerns about the old Soviet Union. So we see then that the weird world, so that's Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic, the first world, Mm -hmm. as we politically incorrect used to refer to it. (laughs) The Western world created all sorts of institutions and then other bits of pieces around the world as they became free from being colonies, became full member states, also joined in all of these bodies. However, going back to 1945, there were disagreements at that time about how ambitious the United Nations was. Now, at one end of the spectrum, which I'm not going to linger, one end of the spectrum got people who just don't approve of international organisations, mm-hmm. don't approve of international corporations. It's sort of the Donald Trump line whereby, you know, everybody should be heavily armed and fight their own wars and forget all this nonsense about cooperation. So I'm not going to be worrying about that end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum, you get people who are in favour of international cooperation but reckon that those 1945 and subsequent organisations didn't go far enough. As in my case, for example, I'm a supporter of the United Nations, a life member of the United Nations Association, but I also belong to other even more idealistic organisations, World Citizens, World Federalists, etc., who even in 1945 and the immediate years were saying the UN is not ambitious enough. It's a great leap forward from the League of Nations, but it's not ambitious enough. We need to be able to get countries to work together far more, if necessary, with an element of coercion. Sure. So Mm. that's the big ambition. And as I say, I straddle both points of view, both those that are supportive of the UN and also for those who want to go beyond the UN and come up with organisations that are even more ambitious. The European Union is an example of an organisation that is more ambitious than the UN in the terms of, you know, once you sign on to the European Union, eventually you're going to end up with, you know, the right of people to move across the European Union. So if you're in the European Union and you're a citizen, you could work for anywhere between Warsaw and Dublin, for yeah. example. So the European Union is much more ambitious, but of course has a much smaller number of countries. So we're in this sort of dilemma, if you like. There is this mood for international cooperation, mm. but can we be even more ambitious? And the document that we're looking at is called Towards a Trilateral Atlantic Pacific Community for the 21st Century. And this comes from an American writer called Ash Jane. And Dr. Jane is talking about this idea of new entities rather than institutions. And it's looking at the UN, is looking at NATO, and is saying, well, we're now heading into a whole new era. So 1945, when the world was dominated by the United States, the Soviet Union and its empire in Eastern Europe, they were separated out to a large extent. They got involved in some UN activities, but were never major players and were certainly not major players in the global economy. Mm. And so we talk about the liberal international order. So that's a small L liberal. It's not a reference to the Liberal Party in Australia. It's the weird world. Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic. Now, Dr. Jane says the problem is we now have what he calls revisionist autocracies. Autocracy means that you have one person running the country, Mm -hmm. which is Putin or President Xi or the North Korean leader, and then revisionists in the sense that they want to stir things up and revise the current standing order. And so Dr. Jane is saying that we somehow ought to bring together these international organisations and expand their coverage. So it's not just focused around the North Atlantic part of it, 
but also involving the South Pacific. And we see that now in the way that Australia, which is a long way from NATO, North Atlantic, yeah. is being invited to meetings of the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation. We're obviously not a full member. We're nowhere near geographically to the North Atlantic, but we are now taken in as an associate member. Mm. And it's interesting that when you look at the photograph from last year's big NATO conference in Madrid, the Spanish hosted it, you've got there a, a photograph of the NATO Secretary General, but also containing the leaders of Australia, Japan, New Zealand and Korea. Yeah. So that, they are ones that are also becoming players. So this is what he means, you know, somehow if we could bring together all of those different regions and unite in a more ambitious approach. Is there you know, like you said, NATO, North America, and, you know, these bodies that were set up after World War II, which, you know, obviously the world's changed a heck of a lot since then. Is there a need for, like, a new body? Is that the idea? Or is it more just adding on to existing ones? Well, he is talking, in effect, about new bodies. Yeah. But um, at the moment, they just simply are talking about the need to strengthen the Atlantic and Pacific ties. And because there is the argument that the Mediterranean is the ocean of the past, the Atlantic is the ocean of the present and the Pacific is the ocean of the future. And that therefore, if you are in the North Atlantic area, you ought to be looking at how you can improve your links with the rising powers in the Pacific. And increasingly, when we talk about Pacific, we talk increasingly about Indo-Pacific. So it's not only just the Pacific Ocean, which is the world's largest water area, but also the Indian Ocean as well. That way you bring in India and China, as well as countries like Japan and South Korea. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr Keith Souter. Thanks for your company this week as we discuss the need for bolstered ties between the US, Asia Pacific and Europe. Now, something I found interesting reading the article, Keith, was that the authors seem to kind of lay the onus of getting this done at the feet of America. Why is that? He is in America and, mm. and he's obviously most of his connections are with America and the current world order is very much dominated by the Americans. Now, there is a school of thought, particularly in China, that we're now coming to the era of a post-American international order. In other words, America is declining in international significance and you do get American politicians who accept that point of view. Isolationism is one of the, the oldest political traditions in the United States. You know, George Washington, when he retired as president, first president, said, don't get involved in Europe's affairs. In effect, they're all mad in Europe. Keep out. <laughs> so that tradition has been around since President Washington retired. So 200 years later or so, just over 200 years, you get the Donald Trumps of this world. Mm. Talk about America first. Yeah. And only thinking in terms of America. It's only really since World War II, that the Americans become engaged in world affairs. And given the wealth of the United States, the Americans were able to impose their views and their method of thinking, at least on the Western world, after 1945. But as I say, you've got domestic pressures, people saying, look, we spend all this money, we lose all these American lives, we're still not feeling any better for it. And you've got others who are saying, look, the rest of the world don't like us anyway. So just get out of world affairs. Mm. Leave it to others. What Dr. Jane is saying, well, we need to 
be reinvigorating Americans. So he comes up with a number of proposals. One is that the existing institutions that are particularly important are the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the OECD, which is the Club of Rich Western Countries, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. But this is a good example of of how the Americans behaved. After World War II, they became very concerned that Western Europe was vulnerable to Soviet pressure because the continent was broke. So they then said, we will supply 2% of our gross national product to Europe for a few years. Just put that in perspective, 2%. Australia gives less than half of 1% in foreign aid. Mm -hmm. So we are talking about serious money here Mm. in comparative terms. And so the Americans said, we're going to give it to the Europeans. And somebody said, well, who who is there? Yeah. Europe's a mess. (laughs) Who's going to receive the money? And so they had to create an organisation which eventually became OECD, which was there to distribute the wealth the Americans were providing. Now, from the American point of view, it made good sense because it meant that people then still remained supportive of Americans. They weren't going to be seduced by the prospect of potential Soviet money. And, of course, it meant that as Europe rebuilt and it needed to buy tractors, it could buy them from the United States. Yeah. So it also helped in America's economic growth Mm. for the Americans to give aid overseas so that overseas countries can buy American products and services. So it was a win-win solution, right? So that's OECD. You've got NATO, you've got OECD, and you've got the group G7, the group of seven of the richest countries, the weird world. So you've got these institutions here. Now, what they're saying is that, according to Dr. Jane, these institutions have done very well in terms of staying together in the face of Russian aggression in Ukraine. And so the challenge is to build it up, particularly to get ready to reply to China. So that's one of his recommendations. Mm -hmm. So that represents a whole new way of looking at world politics, that we build on the existing institutions. Second one is that there should be greater connections with other parts of the world, particularly the Pacific, So that's Australia, Japan, South Korea, New Zealand should join with NATO leaders, as we've seen in Madrid last year, phrase perhaps NATO plus four. So the four countries are Australia, Japan, South Korea and New Zealand. So they would then also be included as honorary members of NATO, even though none of them are anywhere near the North Atlantic. Mm. We could then involve them, and that's why he's talking about this sort of cooperation between the continents. And then thirdly, he talks about the 10 democracies, of which obviously Australia is a member, and how you can build upon that notion of being democratic. Remember, that's, that is the D in weird. Uh-huh. You know, we are democratic societies. We are different from the autocracies that you see in Russia or China or North Korea, along with a lot of other countries that are also autocracies mm. as well. So he's coming up with this agenda, a democratic technology alliance could bring together leading democracies to ensure that the free world prevails in the race for advanced technologies such as artificial intelligence, quantum computing, genetic engineering, 5G, I'm just getting used to 4G, (laughs) (laughs) and robotics. So in other words, he's saying, look, the countries can come together to share information about all this new information technology, et cetera, and build up more coalitions. So it's a very ambitious agenda. 
And he refers back to the State of the Union address given earlier this month by the American president, Joe Biden. Uh, the American president, as a rule, does not go to Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit like the Queen. The Queen does, has no automatic right to the Houses of Parliament and cannot go into the lower house at all. Mm. She goes into the House of Lords, or the King now, yes. going to the House of Lords. So Joe Biden is required each year to give a report on the state of the nation. Traditionally, that was done simply by a letter. And then in recent decades, the president has made a physical appearance inside the Senate. And so this time, President Joe Biden, in his State of the Union address, his annual speech, talked about the bridges we're forming between partners in the Pacific and those in the Atlantic. So Dr. Jane would say, look, we've got Biden who's interested in building up this link. We've got to build upon that, particularly if Biden doesn't win the presidential election in two years' time and you end up with a more isolationist Republican. So the challenge from Dr. Jane is that we need to be striking while the iron is hot. And that's what I was going to say is that it's all well and good if everyone's on the same board right now, on the same page rather, right now. What happens if Australia, you know, the Labor Party's out, the Liberal Party comes in, typically similar to that, you know, smaller government, less involved, you know, know, overseas relations and things like that. Does this plan fall over as soon as there are different people in power who don't agree with it? Well, that's how the deep state is so important. Mm. So if you've built up a constituency within the government, these are the people after who write the speeches that get read by the foreign minister, right? He or she on the day doesn't have much say in foreign policy. But if you can build up that momentum whereby people will say, obviously, we have to stay within the UN. I'm I'm old enough to remember debates in Britain as to whether or not Britain should remain within the UN. Mm. It's inconceivable that anybody now would talk about the need to withdraw Britain from the UN because that has just become established policy. And so that's really what you've got to try to work on in the United States, that you build up this constituency within the bureaucracy mm-hmm. so that if you end up with a, a wild card coming into the White House, you can get that nullified by the sheer bureaucracy because it becomes one individual politician up against this vast bureaucracy. I'd say most average people, myself included, wouldn't think about it that way. You think there's one man and he's in charge or woman, but it sounds like this stuff extends far beyond the reaches of a president or a prime minister. Absolutely. And I think that's a fault about how we in the media report on politics. Mm. It's very much personality driven. And that's not a good way to understand how countries run because you do have the bureaucrats who write the speeches and carry out the policies. And the politicians, in my view, are no more permanent than the perfume on a silk handkerchief. There you go. Well, we'll have to wait and see what happens with that one, obviously. Thanks for your insights, Keith. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr Keith Suter and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nicolich.